Cool. Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here, and thank you very much for your very warm welcome. Uh, just to help us get to know each other, I thought maybe I'd just show you a photo of my wife and kids so you could uh, see who they are. So here they are. And uh, maybe just to introduce our subject, I thought perhaps I'd just tell you a funny story. Uh, it's actually about how uh, Julia and I chose the name of our fourth child. Uh, when my wife uh, was expecting our fourth child, uh, it was all happening very fast. So fast that we actually called an ambulance, and so she's gone into labor. We're in the back of this ambulance. We're racing to the hospital, but in the back of the ambulance, it occurs to me that we don't have another girl's name, if it is going to be another girl, because we have used up all of our girls' names <laughs> on our first three daughters. So looking for a bit of last-minute inspiration, you may be amused to know that I asked the ambulance lady, by the way, what's your name? And she said, Tanith. I said, pardon? She said, Tanith. I said, oh, I said, how do you spell that? She said, T-A-N-I-T-H. She said, do you know what it means? I said, no. She said, it means the serpent lady. <laughs> so, we called our fourth daughter, Emma. <laughs> and looking back now, of course, there wasn't really much chance that we would call her Tanith. Uh, you know, there was never really any doubt about Emma's identity. And, you know, in the same way, when God calls us to, for example, share the good news about who he is, it's not a case of mistaken identity. Actually, God knows exactly who you are and how you feel about this subject. He believes in you, he backs you, he supports you, and empowers you to share good news in your world. So as we're called in the Bible by Jesus to give away the good news, to not keep it to ourselves, we're going to see that there are actually many benefits for us. There are actually huge advantages for me of living a life, massive benefits for you of living a life that is directed towards unconvinced people. Now let me just comment on this rather unusual choice of subject for this morning. Hey, we don't tell other people the good news for our benefit. Yeah, I mean, we obey Christ's commands because of who he is. But as we do that, I want to today just focus on some incidental fringe benefits for us. So, the more that we focus on unconvinced people, five, five benefits. Let's look at five benefits for us. Number one, there'll be more joy in our lives. Um, I was talking to this uh, young woman in our church called Heather, and uh, Heather's friends with these two sisters called Sarah and Anna. Now, neither Sarah nor Anna would have called themselves Christians, but um, Sarah, the older of these two sisters, she's a trainee lawyer, and um, Heather invites both Sarah and Anna to come to our church Alpha launch for our Alpha course. The following morning, Sarah, the older of the two sisters, she's a trainee lawyer. Her job is to take some legal documents that she's been keeping in her flat overnight to the courthouse. And on the one hand, you could say, well, that's really quite a straightforward job. I mean, it's literally moving some papers from A to B. But on the other hand, she's been told 
that this trial can't start until these documents have arrived in the courthouse. So Sarah thinks to herself, don't panic. I will simply set two alarms. I'll set my two alarms earlier than I normally would. She even arranges for her friend to phone her in case her two alarms fail. She wakes up on time. She gets to the bus stop. She gets to the bus stop. And overnight, the council have coned off the bus lane. There's a sign-up saying that they're replacing the Victorian sewers. There'll be no buses running on that road today. She thinks, don't panic. I will simply walk to the underground train station. So she walks to the underground train station. When she gets to the underground train station, the doors are locked. There's a padlock. And there's a whiteboard. London Underground regrets to inform you the northern line is part suspended today. She thinks, don't panic. I will simply walk to the overland train station. Quite a long walk to the overland train. She gets to the overland train station. As she turns the corner, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the overland train station. So she joins the end of the queue. She has to queue through the ticket barrier. She has to then queue down the stairs. Even when she's on the platform, she has to queue on the platform as the trains are arriving until eventually she gets to the front of the platform. She's definitely going to get on the next train. She looks at the board to see when this train's going to arrive. She's looking at the time thinking, I don't know if a train arriving then is going to get me to town before this trial starts. And she starts to get quite worried. And then she thinks, what would my Christian friend Heather do if Heather were in this situation? She thinks, Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah has never prayed a prayer to God as an adult before, but she thinks, do you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray to God. So she begins to pray, not out loud. She prays silently. She closes her eyes, and she's standing there on the platform, and in, she's praying, uh, hello, God. <laughs> yes, it's me, Sarah. Yes, I suppose if you're God, you probably knew that. So, um, yeah, so I really, really appreciate it, uh, God. If somehow you could help me, all these documents, or both of us, get to the courthouse before the trial begins, I'd be really, really grateful. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, not quite sure how you do it, but I'd be really grateful if you did. Uh, amen. Uh, yours sincerely, uh, Sarah, she prays. She finishes the prayer. She opens her eyes. She looks at the man who's standing next to her on the platform. The man who's standing next to her on the platform is the barrister. The barrister who she's supposed to give the documents to at the courthouse. She's so shocked that she doesn't actually say anything. He just hands them over. And of course, he looks at these documents, he immediately recognizes the case. He says, oh, he says, what a marvelous service. I'm really very impressed. Thank you ever so much. What a superb firm. Do pass on my thanks to the partners. It's really rather good. Now I can prepare on the train. What a marvelous service. Thank you very much. And the train arrives. He gets on the train, goes off to the center of town. And Sarah's left on the platform saying, thinking to herself, now come on. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, really, what are the chances? That the, the, the first time I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, that the one person on the planet who could have solved my problem at that moment would just, by chance, happen to be standing right next to me. And you won't be entirely surprised to hear that that week Sarah and Anna turned up 
at the Alpha launch, that's where I met them, and they kept coming every week on the Alpha course. They actually came on the weekend away, and on the weekend away, both Sarah and her sister Anna, they both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And subsequent to that, actually, both Sarah and Anna both got baptized at our church, and then sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna both married young men in our church. They didn't marry the same young man. That would, that would obviously be a bizarre end to the story. You know, they married different young men. Anyway, I asked, do you remember Heather at the start of the story? Heather, the young woman from our church who invited these sisters onto the Alpha course. I went back to her and I said, hey, it's amazing what happened to Sarah and Anna, yeah? And this is what Heather said. She said, the more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. She said, praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. She said, focusing on lost people has reminded me that all of my problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended and stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact that I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. She said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. This is an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you. How you and Christ are part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? Because you are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. Because the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in education and no Christians in business and no Christians in healthcare, no Christians in local government, no Christians in the media, no Christians in sport. The devil would be delighted if all Christians lived in cozy Christian bubbles. Why? Because the devil knows that in John chapter 17, Jesus did not pray, Oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, the devil knows in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. Jesus prayed. Because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. Second benefit this morning. We will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of our uh, four kids came home from school one time and she's got this invitation to a, a school multicultural fundraising evening at the school hall. So I go to this event and at this event I get talking to this dad, this other dad, right? He's wearing a Mexican hat a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. It's a multicultural, yeah, so, yeah. So I look at this guy in this amazing outfit, and I literally say, the first thing I ever say to him is, wow, I say, 
where are you from? And he said, Iraq. Like he really was from Iraq. So anyway, we have a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. There then follows a whole hour of multicultural dancing. So we're dancing around the school hall. So, sorry, this is my multicultural dancing. So we're dancing around the school hall like this for a whole hour, yeah? And then I bump into him again a second time, and I ask him, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? But he didn't answer. What he did was he kind of furtively kind of he points towards the bar, sort of gestures towards the bar, and he walks off towards the bar. So I, I follow him towards the bar. Like he's sort of creeping off towards the bar. I'm, I'm creeping off. He gets the bar. <coughs> he leans on the bar. He, he looks both ways. Checks that the coast is clear. He says, I have completely rejected Islam. I lean on the bar. I look both ways. I check that the coast is clear. I say, so have I. <laughs> he said, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He said, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yes, it is. He said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, yes, we have. So he says, why don't you come over on Saturday with your wife and your kids, my wife Mira and I, we will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. Come over on Saturday at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. So that's the invitation. Okay. Now, that particular Saturday, in fact, to be honest, most Saturdays, in the morning, uh, I take the little children, our two little ones, swimming. Yeah? It's a common dad thing, family splash. Yeah? So the thing is that I'm not very good at it. Um, so I, I'm quite slow at getting them through the change room. You've got the drying of the hair. I haven't got any hair, you know. So it's, it's quite, a, quite a long time drying the hair. So we're late, basically, that's the point. We're late. So by the time we get home, I think to myself, I don't think we've got enough time to go all the way over to Tesco's Express, buy lunch, bring it back, eat lunch, and then get over to Salah's flat by three. So I say to my wife and kids, let's all go to McDonald's. And the kids go, yay, Daddy McDonald's. This is a great moment in my life. Yay, Daddy McDonald's. Let's go to McDonald's. So at McDonald's, I have a Big Mac, a large fry. This is relevant to the rest of the story. A Big Mac, a large fry, and a large strawberry milkshake. Okay? Bear that in mind. Right. So I then arrive. We, we turn up. We're on time at 3 o'clock. Ring the doorbell. Mira, Salah's wife, opens the door. Welcome. Welcome to our home, she says. Let us all go through and have dinner. And kind of internally, I'm like, what now? I thought the invitation was come over on Saturday at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being, by definition, an evening meal. At some unspecified time in the evening, we will have dinner. But no, the actual word spoken will come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. And I'm already full of Ronald McDonald. <laughs> and she opens the door, and there's this huge table. And it's got trays of food. And she's bringing in other trays, different regional dishes from different parts of Kurdistan are coming in like this. And I look at it, and around this table, there is only one chair. And she explains that as the guest of honor, I am to sit in the chair. And that none of them can start to eat until I have started eating. And I sit in this chair, and I'm thinking to myself about my Big Mac, about my large fries, about my large strawberry milkshake. But then I remember that verse in the Bible where Jesus commands his followers, eat whatever is set before you. <laughs> I could tell you, I can even remember that time when as a young Christian I promised to obey every command in the gospel. Anyway, so at the end of this meal, 
I've never felt so bloated in all my life. And, and, and I'm, sort of, I'm sitting there having this conversation with Salah. And I'm, I can feel myself physically expanding inside his flat. And, and, I, and I'm sort of in this, in this inebriated state, sort of passing in and out of consciousness. <laughs> which is a shame, really, because he's explaining to me his profound intellectual rejection of Islam. Salah is complaining to me that he has a spiritual void in his life. He's asking, can you help? And I can tell you, folks, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You know, at the end of this conversation, at the end of this visit, we get up to leave. It was actually quite hard for me to get up to leave. Um, and so I was actually standing. I was propped against the wall in the corridor. I never forget what he says, though. He says, um, we want to be with you, he says. We want you to be our friends. Actually, all I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening. But God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually open and spiritually searching. At the gym, I needed to go to the gym after this episode. Um, at the gym, uh, my mate Chris, who, who's uh, not a Christian, uh, Chris asked me, what have you been up to this week? I said, Chris, preparing a message to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? He said, tell them not to say the good book says this and the good book says that. Because people like me, Adrian, are cynical. Cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet are cynical about religion. But most people I meet, Chris feel positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion, but they actually have quite a high opinion of Jesus as a person. Most people I meet, Chris, have a high view of Jesus of Nazareth as a person. I'd say, Chris, the great thing is that what is on offer is not religion. What is on offer is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing, he said. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, well, that depends. I said, on what? He said, on where I am. I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, when I get, in, when I get on my bike, I'm cycling out of central London, I'm like, and when I'm in, in, like, in the Surrey countryside, and I can see the trees and the grass and, you know, and, and the hills all around me, he says, I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes. But I've absolutely no idea what it is. And again, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ, and God is on your side. And the resources, all the resources of heaven have been placed at our disposal. We are promised when we do speak on his behalf, God is going to back us up. We'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Benefit number three, we'll see ourselves making a difference. Now, you love this. 
You love it when the, the God who's really there, the God of the Bible, comes into somebody else's life through you. You love that. And actually, it's as we go that Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, look, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. The Apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said of himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So we need to remember that Jesus made a conscious decision to hang out with unbelieving people. So his reputation at the time was something like this. Oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, here's what we've heard about him. He's a glutton. Jesus, yeah, he's a, he's a wine bibber. Jesus, Jesus he's, a friend, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, people said that about him because Jesus made a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as you and I, as soon as we even start praying for that skeptical person, we are pointing ourselves in the same direction that Jesus pointed himself. We are lining ourselves up with the same mission that Jesus lined himself up with. And as we do that, we'll find that all the resources of heaven will swing in behind us, and God himself is cheering us on. It's just as clear when Jesus says to his followers in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, I find that most of us as Christians, we have no difficulty. Once we become a Christian, it's relatively easy to believe that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. But what really is a delicious, sumptuous, wonderful thought is to think in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, Jesus has now sent you and me into our world, our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors who don't yet know Christ. As much as the Father was with Jesus, Jesus is now with you. Fourth benefit, then, we'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Philemon, verse 6, says it's through sharing our faith that we become increasingly aware of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. Maybe I can just tell you a story on this subject. There's about a couple in our church called Richard and Jill, and they were active in sharing their faith with this other couple called Paul and Helena, this is an old, old photo of Paul and Helena. In fact, when this photo was taken, neither Paul nor Helena would have called themselves Christians. Just to give you a bit of background, Paul was a 35-year-old atheist. He was an insurance broker in central London. Uh, they're married uh, with three sons. Helena is a nurse. And uh, they live in this uh, town in, in Surrey called Caterham. Now, today, uh, Paul is actually the pastor of a church. Uh, this is actually the second church that Paul and Helena have led. And I don't know whether you're like me, but when you hear that kind of story, you kind of wonder, well, how does that happen? I mean, how do you go from being a 35-year-old atheist to becoming the pastor of two churches? I mean, how does that happen? Folks, this is what happened. One day, one afternoon, Paul and Helena were going for a walk in the park. And they're following this pathway in the park, as they're following the pathway, they see this couple from our church, Richard and Jill, who are sitting on the grass. Paul realizes this is the Christian couple. Because, see, the connection is, remember I told you that Helena, Paul's wife, is a nurse? Jill, this lady from our church, she's a nurse at the same hospital, yeah, the East Surrey Hospital. And so there's, these two have made friends, and 
Jill from our church has been active in sharing her faith with Helena. Helena started to ask questions about Jill's Christian faith. Paul is aware this is the Christian couple. So what does Paul do? He blanks them. Yeah. So he's walking along the path, and he literally blanks them and pretends they're not there like this. But there's been too much eye contact. So he has to do that thing where, you know, he, he walks along and he says, Oh, <laughs> almost walked straight by. You didn't see you there. <laughs> How are you? Great to see you, Paul says. So Paul and Helena walk over. The thing is, Richard and Jill are sitting on the grass. They're having a picnic. Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. And so the social rules of Surrey dictate Paul and Helena have to sit down and have their picnic with Richard and Jill. And now the four of them are sitting down. And Paul is thinking, oh, I cannot believe I'm stuck with the Christians. How did this happen? But then he thinks, you know what? I can do it. I can have some fun. Because if they bring up the subject of God or Jesus or whatever the Christians talk about, I can have some fun. I can point out the factual errors, the logical inconsistencies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks. And wouldn't you just know it? Three minutes into the conversation, Helena, Paul's wife, asked Jill a question directly about her Christian faith. And for the next hour and a half, they have this full-on conversation about God and Jesus and so on. And Paul says at the end of the conversation, he says, I remember walking back to the car, thinking to myself, I knew that it would be easy to win the conversation against or with the Christians. But he says, do you know what? It was even easier than I thought it would be. Anyway, gets to the car. He puts the picnic boxes in the back of the car. He closes the boot. He said, I walk around into the driver's seat. He said, I put my, the key in the ignition. And then Paul says, I heard myself say these words. Helen, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much. I'm ever so sorry, darling. I lied. It was much more. It was actually this much. Well, there then follows a full and frank exchange of views between the married couple. Anyway, that all dies down. Paul drives home. He pulls up on the, on the gravel drive, yeah? And he just feels this kind of weird urge to go into his study. So he goes into his study. He gets out a pad of blank A4 paper, lined paper. He just starts writing down everything he can think of that he's ever done wrong. Now, when I met Paul, I asked him what, what was going on there. And he said, well, I went back every day for three days. I said, well, why did it take you three days? He said, well, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. So he writes all this stuff down. He said, it was just like being sick. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I'd feel better. Anyway, you already know the end of this story, because I just told you that he ends up becoming the pastor of two different churches. These two become Christians, Paul and Helena. And so... I met Paul and Helena just by the door because I was on the welcome team one Sunday at our church. So I'm just greeting people as they arrive. And then this couple arrived with these three lovely sons. I've never seen them before in my life. And so I introduced myself. They introduced themselves. And I said, oh, do you know anyone here? They said, oh, yes, we know Richard. Oh, I know Richard and Jill. I said, well, would you mind me saying, is this your first Sunday here? He said, oh, yes, it's our first Sunday ever at church. Paul says, we've just become Christians earlier this week. What a great answer. <laughs> really, really good answer. So I said, well, you know, do you mind me asking, how did that happen? And he, he then tells me the story that I just told you. And as you can imagine, towards the end of this story, I am absolutely fascinated to ask Paul, Paul, what was it? 
What was it that Richard and Jill said to you that afternoon in the park that made you want to confess about the credit card bill and then go into your study every day for three days and write down everything you'd ever done that was wrong? What was it that Richard and Jill said to you in the park that afternoon, Paul, that made you want to leave atheism at the age of 35 and become a Christian? What did they say? He said, oh, he said, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, what was it then? He said, oh, it was them. It was something about them. And he would now say, it was Christ in them. Now, this is the first time I've ever met Paul. We're standing by the door on his first Sunday at church. Eight years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And as I told you, he's now leading this other church, which is in, in Cornwall. Paul said that the real Jesus, who really is alive, was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a desire to feel pure. Paul wanted to feel clean. Now, he never felt this desire to be purified and washed ever before. Paul and Helena found out that summer there's more to life than being successful. There's more to life than being happily married. There's more to life than being happily married with kids. There's more to life than having a good career. They found that there's a real God who really loves you. But just think about that story from Richard and Jill's point of view. Just think about it from Jill's point of view. What she did was she befriended this lady, Helena, at work. And she was active in sharing her faith with Helena. But now she would say, hey, Philemon verse 6, through being active in sharing my faith, I've now got a much fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Okay, folks, fifth and final benefit this morning, and then we're, we're done. Uh, fifth and final benefit, will become more like Jesus. How so? Well, actually, in loads of ways. Let's just choose one. Jesus drew people to God by telling stories. So don't be totally surprised if you find that you get increasingly more pleasure out of storytelling. Because people love to listen to Jesus' stories. The Bible says that the common people heard him gladly. And somebody could hear that and say, yeah, I, I get that. I, I, I get the importance and value of storytelling in our culture. But somebody might say, the thing is, I personally don't really have a story. I don't really have like a testimony of how I became a Christian. Because you might say, I was only, I don't know, eight years old when I became a Christian. So I don't really have, you might say, a dramatic before and after story of how I became a Christian. Because you see, there are some people who do have a dramatic before and after story. I mean, maybe you've heard some of these stories. I find often Christians from America will have a dramatic before story. Haven't you heard these stories? And, and typically, a, a story might begin something like this. Dude, I had a $1,000 a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night in prison, she... No, you can't say that. You can't say that because before you became a Christian, you were only seven years old, and you were attending a Church of England primary school <laughs> in Guildford. Now, 
here's the thing. Um, my wife, Julia, is the most effective personal evangelist that I know. So Julia has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could very easily say, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? So she said, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it's when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. It was about that time that I first discovered voodoo. Is that what she says? No. Um, the, the truth is, folks, that Julia did not grow up in the Bronx. Uh, she never saw action in Vietnam. No, before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. <laughs> so what is her 45-second faith story? This is what she says. As a child, I worried a lot, even though I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible, and I became a Christian age 12. I was baptized age 13. But when I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever, and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried. But I felt God's presence, and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. Folks, one day the Bible says in the book of Revelation, it says that there'll be so many people in heaven that no one will ever be able to count them. There'll just be too many. And by that stage, the book of Revelation says there'll be at least one person from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every ethnic group, every language, every nation around the throne of God in heaven. What that means is that between today and that day, millions and millions of people are going to come to meet God personally and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And you and I get to be part of seeing that happen. We get to play our part in actually the most wonderful thing that will happen in the future history of our world. And we can have the time of our lives right now in the process. So we get to enjoy that journey. Folks, right now we are in the most wonderful, the most glorious adventure. Shall we stand together? And I will pray. Father, thank you so much for this tremendous journey that we're on. Thank you, Lord, for all the people that you're bringing to yourself here in Paul in this area around us. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing, bringing people to Jesus, that we're part of this huge adventure. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of having our sins forgiven, of being people known by you, knowing you, loving you, being loved by you. We thank you for the cost, the price that you paid with your own blood, the blood of your dear son, that we might be able to stand here and know you. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of knowing God personally. Thank you for what you're doing through us, through this church right now, reaching out. Thank you for all the Christmas services coming up, all the people who we could invite along. Perhaps they wouldn't come at any other time of year, but will be open to an invitation right now. Thank you for all the relationship bridges you've given us to hundreds of people in the area. 
Lord, as we send invitations across that relationship bridge, we thank you you're going to draw people to yourself and you're going to build your church. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.